All right, we are in week three of a series that we have called Roadmap. We're going through the book of Galatians, and uh, we're calling it Roadmap because Galatians really is setting a very direct GPS coordinate into eternity, right? And so it's it's got everything that we need to understand what it looks like to receive the fullness of salvation in our lives. So last week, uh, we were in the second half of chapter one, and we went into chapter two, and we talked about how personal Paul was getting. Paul, uh, was he established last week for us personal responsibility, how it was that he takes responsibility, and that is what he does. So he laid out for us the process in which he personally walks out his life, right? And inside of that, we got a glimpse into how he established personal accountability, and that is who has a say. Do, do you? Do, I hope that you believe this. Somebody should have a say in your life, right? Somebody should have a say in helping you to be a better person. You know, the scripture says that iron sharpens iron, and, and when my, when my, uh, when a certain kid was younger, they enjoyed a TV show called The Wiggles. Anybody ever seen The Wiggles, right? And, and there was this awesome attempt at like nonviolence, but still trying to draw something out. And so they had a pirate whose name was Captain Feathersword, and his sword was a feather, right? And at the time, I just thought, you know, innocent fun. Now I look back on it, and I'm like, I wish I would have sat down and been like, Pirates don't carry feather swords. Let me tell you something about pirates real quick. Although I do think they got the introduction to that when they watched Pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, I was like, this will be good for them. And then all of a sudden they're underwater and there's like skeletons going and they were like, Wah! and we had to turn it off. Too intense. I don't know if you're a parent and you've ever made those mistakes, right? Um, I did that with Batman Begins with one of my kids. I was like, this, this is so awesome. They're going to love this. And the first three minutes, like he falls into a cave and bats swarm him. And my kid's like, Wah! and I was like, okay, all right, I've got to do better at this. And there have been a lot of those types of stories, but Captain Feather Sword was a unique one, right? Because here's the reality is that the Feather sword isn't going to sharpen anything, right? And it's not going to hurt anything. And if we want to become better, right, as believers, if if we want to be sharpened and refined, it's gonna it's gonna take some some difficulty, and we need some people in our lives who are not coming along with the feather and just fanning us all the time. Instead, we're gonna need some people that are gonna come and say some things that are hard, right? Course correction. Right? We get this with the GPS, right? When we take a wrong turn, all of a sudden, like all the buzzers are going off and it's screaming, you're going the wrong direction, do a U-turn. Uh, uh, we, we need that if we're going to stay on course. And so he says, I have accountability in my life. And then he, said, he talks about his personal integrity and he, and he lays out this story about how Peter, right, one of the apostles, comes into town and Peter is ministering among the Gentiles. They had already established the process in which they were going to, or, or the, the message that they were going to be sharing. So Peter's sharing the gospel. And all of a sudden, some of the, the Jews come into town and instead of maintaining an integrity, Peter becomes uh, a, a little bit uh, uh, withdrawn and ultimately begins to uh, uh, compromise the message because he does not want to offend his Jewish 
friends, brothers, sisters, and, it, and the scripture says that Paul is laying out some, some standards of integrity, and that means that even if you are my brother in Christ, and I, I just have to say this, like, Paul goes and he rebukes Peter, and Peter receives that. That that is it is wildly different when somebody is not walking in the Lord and wants to bring rebuke than it is when somebody is loving the Lord and they have gentleness and patience and they come to you and they say, "Hey, man, one brother in Christ to another, one sister in Christ to another." I need to tell you, you're missing what God's doing right here. All right, so I'm not telling you that this is like like this argument with Paul and Peter is some standard for like every time you see somebody doing something wrong, you just go and and yell at them. And then anybody that comes to you and says you're doing wrong has a right to do that. No, there has to first be some things established, responsibility and accountability. And if somebody's not under that accountability and they're coming at you trying to tell you what God's doing, I, I would I would caution you there, right? Okay, but inside of those parameters, he says, he says that I'm going to be willing to, to stand up and say some things because there are certain things that just will not be allowed. So why does he come in chapter one talking about the fact that there aren't other gospels, there's one gospel, and let me tell you a little bit about my life. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he has a plan. And chapter three is planned out. And I love this about the way Paul writes. Paul does this thing for the reader where he he brings them and he connects to them, right? He shows his humanity. He lays his cards out because he's going to bring something to the table to challenge the reader. And that's what we're going to get to here in chapter three. So just as a, a reminder, what is Paul addressing? Paul is addressing these Judaizers, these people who are not willing to let go of an old way, right, in order to walk out the faith as it has been prescribed through Scripture. And so they have all these caveats, these things you need to do, and it's creating an issue in the the region of Galatia, which is a number of churches. So this isn't just like This is just a single church, okay? A lot of times he'll write to a single church, but also there are times where he'll write to a group of churches. That's what's happening here. He's writing to a group of churches and he's telling them, you guys have an issue because now all of a sudden you've got all of these gospels being presented, right? It's Jesus and being engaged in this or involved in that or saying this or doing that. And so, you know, it's this type of thing that says, I'm a Christian, look at the things I do, the movements I support, the events I participate in. The problem was that they were boasting in this faith of being Christ followers by attaching themselves to something else. So when I was uh, in Bible college uh, in a in a different season of life, uh, I was uh, not at home anymore. So, you know, you think you go to Bible college and you don't experience any of the normal college stuff. Well, you do. A lot of people at Bible college go and lose God, right? They're on fire in youth ministry. They go to Bible college and God becomes the last thing from their mind. They're partying and sleeping around, doing all the things that everyone else is doing. I didn't do any of those things. And it's not because I'm a better person than anybody. God just saved me from that mess. Instead, Instead, I connected with a group of people that we spent our Friday nights and Saturday nights going to the area where the bars were and standing outside and trying to share the gospel with people who were coming in and out. And one of the classic things that people would say as they came stumbling out was, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church at such and such. A few years ago, I was at 
Fuddruckers when it was still open over on Berwick. Uh, it was a burger joint. If you don't know what that is, look it up. I grew up eating those burgers, and so I was there with this guy. Uh, I had been asked to come and speak into his life, and uh, he was talking about like living this life uh, just in essence, from Friday to Monday in a drunken stupor and whatever drugs he could get his hands on and how his marriage was falling apart, his children were in rebellion. And I was like, where's your faith at, right? And he was like, oh, it's good, it's good, man. I, I, I don't go to church every week, but I go to church sometimes. I said, where do you go to church at? He goes, uh, it's that one over there behind Walmart. Good, good. So you're a Christian because there's some activity that you're engaged in, and you can't even give me details about it, right? Now, this can look even more. We can get into some, like, social justice type of things. Like, I'm a Christian because I marched with this group, and I have this sign in my yard, right? I've got my little virtue signal. Come look. I am connected to making sure everybody's happy right now, right? None of those things, though, Paul says, are actually what are saving any of you. And the problem that you have is that by gravitating into that and making that your message, you're actually making sure that the people who hear it are not connecting to the gospel. That's a problem because there's eternity that's, that's hinging for them, right? And so Paul's calling these things out. So let's go to Galatians chapter three. We're gonna cover just chapter three today. I tried to cover a chapter and a half last week and it was like an hour and a half long. So I'm gonna cut it down today, all right? Verse one, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me just throw this out for you in case you missed the first couple of them. Paul is, is he's pretty spicy right now, right? You can tell through the writing that this is not his traditional, like, I love you brothers, here's what you need to do. There's a tone that's different in this book. Uh, scholars have talked about it for, for years and years, that there's something happening here. He's not happy. He's upset. And I'll tell you why he's upset. He's upset. He's fired up because this other types of gospels that start getting uh, propagated, when that begins to happen inside of churches, right? The problem is, is that everybody that floods into that church and hears that gospel is not getting saved, they're being deceived. And so I, I kind of get this. Like there are some things that have happened in the last, you know, 18 months that I've seen unfolding in our nation that have me pretty fired up at times, right? If you do coffee with me one-on-one, uh, -on -one, you, you might even realize that from the platform. But, but I, I'm, I get pretty upset at this idea that there are so many things that are leading people away from the cross. And so Paul, he's coming out right here and, and he's, he's swinging. Right, He's coming into the ring, and he ain't playing. He's not waiting for them to throw a punch. He's been dropped in. The bell's been rung, and he's going for the knockout. This isn't a debate. It's not a conversation. I'm telling you, you're wrong. And he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So this word foolish, let's just break it down. We're not going to do this to every verse, but there are a few verses I think are pretty powerful. I want to make sure we get a picture of this. So foolish in the Greek, thoughtless, lacking the effort to reason. Now, notice that it doesn't say here that lacking the capacity to reason, right? Because you have the capacity to reason, but it takes effort to reason. This is a, this is a reality in, in our lives, right? Like, I, I have to believe that you know somebody who you, you, you think to yourself sometimes, what is going on in their head? And, and this is the thing, is that if we don't put forth the 
effort to discover truth, we will just believe whatever is being said to us. Uh, we, I've said this for years and years and years, and this is part of the reason that we educate our kids the way we do, and that is that there is a society mindset that wants to tell people what to think, not how to think. And you need to learn how to think. You need to learn how to reason. So he calls them foolish because they don't reason. And this is what blew my mind, right? So if you go and you look this up, uh, there's, there's just a, a lot of differences in, in Greek and Hebrew compared to the English. And so there are, they have to look at the context a lot of times to really pull like what is the intent. And this blew my mind in, in, in concordance after concordance it talked about this idea that by implication, sensual. So this foolishness was not just like, you're a fool. It was like, you're a fool in a sensual context, right? And so to break this down, it's a picture of, that, that Paul's painting, of like somebody who is caught up in lust, Right Now, we are having family services. Our, we don't have our kids' ministry open yet. It is something that we're working on. I'll go ahead and say that, but it's not open yet. So I'm going to be delicate in this. But there is something that happens, right, when somebody gets so wound up inside of lust, right, that they don't think clearly. This is why following the one-night stand or the, you know, few minutes in front of some pornography and it's all over with, there's conviction because there's a clarity of mind that comes on the other side of lust. And this is why scripture talks a lot about this, okay? So Paul is actually using foolishness in this context to help people connect with exactly what's going on. William Shakespeare did a really good job with this in his Sonnet 219. Now you might be impressed right now thinking, man, Pastor Jim knows Shakespeare, and he even knows what's... No, I Googled this junk. I'm going to tell you right now. So the expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action until action lust is, per, is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. And he ends the sonnet by saying, all this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Because there is something that appears so gratifying about being caught up in the moment, but there is something that brings such conviction when it's over. And Paul says, you're caught up in this thing, this foolishness. This is the picture that he's painting. It's not just like, oh, you're not putting any effort in. He says, you're consumed inside of something. So, uh, so why would Peter have intermixed Judaism and the faith? Why would Peter have come into this place, been sharing the gospel, and begun to take this old faith and the new faith and put it together? He comes right out of this story into this rebuke, telling them about Peter and the fact that he called them out. And let me tell you right now, and this is important for you to understand, Peter in this moment, now here's, let me just clarify, a man of God, a man of God who loves the Lord, and I, I can tell you this, in eternity, Peter will be there. Jesus affirms Peter, so do not think that in what I'm about to say that somehow Peter is not a man of God. This just helps us understand how easy it is for a believer to get off, off base and need rebuke. I need it in my life. 
The reason that Peter was coming into this place was because of foolishness, and that foolishness births so as not to offend. And let me tell you something. Like when you get in this mindset of, I just, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend them. You are caught in the foolishness that Paul is talking about right here. Because there is this thing that says, things will be better. It will be so great if I don't offend them. They'll be my friend. Maybe one day I'll be able to share the gospel with them. I'm just not going to risk offending them. Let me tell you something about offense. Offense for the sake of the gospel is acceptable, but offense that prevents the gospel is unacceptable. Now, what, what am I saying here? Paul does paints two different pictures for us in his writings. He says that if it offends my brother to eat meat for the sake of the gospel, I won't eat meat. Why? Because the eating of the meat is not tethered to the faith that he's going to talk about. But if I start coming in and allowing other things to be infiltrated into the faith, I need to be ready to offend. And so here's the juggling act that you have in front of you as a Christian that Paul is talking about. You're going to have to decide when offense is something you should be doing and when it is something that you shouldn't be doing. And there is no, there's no book that I'm going to be able to give you that has some little concordance of how is this an appropriate moment or not. You're going to have to lay every situation up against the gospel. And when you lay it up against the gospel, you're going to have to decide, do I need to go ready to offend a brother because what they're doing is hurting the gospel? Or do I need to be ready to, to make this sacrifice so that the gospel can be shared. And Paul says that that they're just caught up in this foolishness. They're not using that reason. They're not evaluating the situation. And so in order to be accepted, they are accepting everything. And so all of a sudden the gospel is being muddled. It's being carried down. And ultimately, Paul says there at the beginning, he says, it is not even the gospel because there's only one. And then he uses this word bewitched. Now, when you read this, and I would be guilty of this too, I'm thinking of like, you know, a professor in Hogwarts, some Harry Potter moment, like, oh, they're all putting on their sorcerer hats and they're engaged in witchcraft. And that actually isn't what this means. And, and this is why we, we look at these words. Uh, so bewitched is to fascinate, to affix the flesh or evil eye on. And so, yes, it is a negative, but it is not about casting spells. It is about affixing what I want onto a situation rather than what God wants onto a situation. And Paul is assuming you understand the definition of the word. Now, he knows when he's writing to the churches that are in this region, he knows that they understand it. The problem that we have is that we don't do the work of looking up what some of these words mean. And so because the enemy is aware of that, and I assure you this is the case, we take modern definitions of words and we just apply them into these places. And then we'll think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have a wand that I'm walking around with casting spells with. No, no, no. Paul is talking about the fact that there is a focus being made that you've given over to that is coming from the flesh, not from the spirit. So let's go back and just look at this then in context. He says, oh foolish Galatians, you do not reason. You're not using your minds. And he says, who has bewitched you? Who has come and presented something to you that you have been willing to put your the eye of your flesh on 
It was before your eyes an important and, and, and necessary parallel being made here. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So you know what happened, but instead of keeping your eyes on the cross, you have instead turned your eyes on to that which is evil before God, and you have done it in the name of the gospel. And so you are creating a false way into eternity. So your eyes are on evil and not the cross. Verse two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit by the things you did, the movements you supported, the events that you participated in? Think about that. Are, these the, are the things that you've been a part of the way that you were saved? So what is Paul doing? He, he's pushing them to reason. He's asking some questions because when we ask questions, we cause people to have to think in order to answer. He says, are you saved by these things, right? Is that where you are going to account your salvation to have come from? He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So you would answer the question and go, no, 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 I believed in Jesus. Like I was at that camp and the, they gave a really great message and I ran to the altar and I cried. It was beautiful. I heard angels and it was, I went home. I told everybody I love Jesus and I've been on fire for, you know, a few months. And, and then I realized that what, in order to stay saved, I had to start doing all of these things. Paul says that's foolishness to think that the, that the process from being saved by this confession of faith was somehow perfected by all the things you did, right? So you, you, you're doing things that bring perfection to the situation, right? I mean, I think if we're honest, most of us could say with beyond a reasonable shadow of a doubt that not much we touch is perfected. Not much that we put all of our time and energy comes out looking exactly how we want it to. And so why would our eternity somehow be perfected by the things that we do? Are the things you do, the movements you support, the events you participate in, are they the things that are perfecting you? Are you saved? Oh yeah, I go to church at so-and-so. So, so, so going to church at so-and-so perfects you? Are you saved? Yeah, I do a lot to help people who are in need. So doing things for people in need saves you? Paul's saying that this just isn't the case. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So embracing Christianity meant walking away from social movements and other faiths while facing persecution and rejection. When he talks about you suffered so many things, right? He is talking about the fact that when you became a Christian, it meant that you were going to walk away from these things, not try to figure out a way to intertwine them into your life, not to make them a part of the faith. There was a severing, a walking away, and then there was persecution and rejection. It meant being canceled. That's a modern term for it, right? I'm saved, I'm a believer, I'm not buying into what you're selling, and therefore, 
What happened to them was the people in their families, the people they worked with said, you no longer have a voice. And so the church was filled with people who were walking through what we call cancel culture. And Christianity birthed in the middle of this idea of cancel culture, and it couldn't be stopped. No matter how hard they tried, it got to the point where they were willing to take their lives. Now, let me tell you, that is absolutely happening in other parts of the world today. Thankfully, it's not happening right here. But the, the hope and the goal is that from the outside that there would be enough pressure applied that you would be quiet about your faith. And he says, did you suffer these things in vain? And then he, he says it here in this way, right? He says, if indeed it was in vain. Why does he tag it like that? Because still Paul has hope. Even though He's, he's going, he has hope that they will go, you know what, you're right. I walked through some real difficulty for this. Why would I just give it up, right? I mean, I had, I, had, I had brothers or sisters or moms or dads, maybe even sons or daughters who turned on me and wanted nothing to do with me and I walked through that. Why would I abandon that? Paul has hope that they will, that they will come to a place of clarity and reason and walk away from foolish thought. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by the one gospel. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed that Jesus was coming. He didn't know him by name, but he knew that an offspring, he knew that a seed was coming and that he would be the hope of humanity, that he would pay the ultimate sacrifice. Abraham said, I believe that, and God said, I count that as righteousness. You are saved. For what? For believing what God said. God said it, I believe it, you're saved. It wasn't God said it, Abraham heard it, he went and talked with his wife for a little bit about it, they had a community meeting, they went back to God and said, look, here are some terms and conditions, we'll believe this thing if also we get three pigs and a goat. That's not what happened. God said it, Abraham believed it, he was saved. Verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is what Paul says. Paul says, God always had a plan to save the Gentiles. How do we know that? because God went into the Gentiles and found a man. In case you were unaware of this, uh, Abraham, known as Abram at the time, uh, lived in Babylon. His dad was a uh, salesman of uh, idols, right? An idolatrous area. And God spoke to this man who was just a Gentile. And God said, I've got a plan and a destiny for you. And Abram said, I'm in, let's go. Now, he didn't get it all right. And this is the beauty of the story. Why it matters is because it, Abram did not walk it out exactly correct, and yet he was still saved. And it wasn't a list of actions and do's and don'ts that saved him. It was the faith. It was believing 
And so the gospel was always the plan. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those who are of faith, you believed it, you are blessed with Abraham. Now, this is, this is why this is important. And culturally, we don't, we don't grab onto this the way that they did. Abraham was seen as the man. Like, like this was who you would aspire to be like. This was who you would point to, right? We have a, a ton of other people in our lives that, that we point to, right? We go, oh, I want to be like this person. I want to be like Elon Musk. I want to be like uh, Michael Jordan. I want to be like, I, I'm, I, I couldn't even give you all the names. Some of them, I'm just trying to make sure I don't name somebody who's, you know, terribly offensive, right? You say, I want to be like this person. There was a culture and there was a time where people within this faith community were raising their children saying, if you could be like anybody, it would be like Abraham. So when he says here that those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, he's telling them like this person that you hold in such high esteem that when you believe the same way, you're right there with him. You wanted to get there? Here's the secret sauce that you've been missing to step into the faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So he says that the law has been presented and the law made it evident that you could not be saved by any amount of actions. And he makes this reference to this curse, right? He's referencing Habakkuk chapter two, looking here in verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous among us shall live by faith. And this is what he comes to. He says that there is a curse, but the righteous do not live by the law. They live by faith. So he's going back into the Old Testament and saying, I'm not trying to present some new age, you know, funky little idea to you. This is something that the prophets were talking about before Jesus even showed up. That faith would be the thing. That faith has always been the thing. Go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's making a reference back to Deuteronomy 21. And he's saying long before Jesus died on the cross, it was already said that in order for us to be redeemed, somebody had to become cursed. And it says here that whoever is hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus is the fulfillment of that being hung on a tree. And by doing this, he kicked open the doors of salvation for you. So Abraham, way back there, looking forward, he says, okay, so you're telling me that somebody's gonna pay the price. I believe it. 
And so the Old Testament prophets, one after another, they begin to believe that there is an offspring. There is hope that is coming, and they're looking forward to the cross, right? And when that cross happens, when that person hits that tree, when that moment happens and the curse is put onto somebody else, it will be removed from me, and I will be saved. I believe that because you said that that's, what it's, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus became that fulfillment. And remember where he began this, this conversation with them. He said, what? You, with your eyes, have seen the results of this, Jesus on the cross. So it brings us back to the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you a follower of Christ? Are you a Christian because you believe it's the right faith? Well, I'm a Christian because I've looked at all the different religions around the world, and I've, I've spent many years. I traveled the mountains of Tibet, and I went and, you know, sang with monks in a monastery, and I've looked at all the ins and outs and discovered that this one makes the most sense. So I think this is the right faith. Paul, Paul's saying, bro, that's not the gospel, but the gospel isn't about an evaluation, uh, you know, creating an, an anti-chart where you're like, well, here are the positives and the negatives, and I think there's more positives with Christianity than there are with the others. That's, that's not what this is about. That's not what saves you. Is it because you believe that it's a good way to live? You know what? Most everybody in my community are Christians, and they're good people, so I think this is a good thing. I'll, I'll be a Christian because I see some good people around me. Paul's saying, like, that's, that's, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel isn't about, like, hey, it's a pretty decent thing, right? No, no, no. Because you believe Jesus died and became the curse you were supposed to be. This is what he says. When he's talking about this curse, he is talking about guilt, that you become acutely aware that, it, that your sin deserves a punishment, and you are overcome by the fact that somebody would take that punishment for you that Jesus would, he would bear your shame. And that just by believing, just as they did, that he was coming, we're believing that he came, but there's evidence of that. Our faith is that Jesus is soon returning. Our faith is that Jesus is coming to set up a second and a new earth, an eternal kingdom right here where we're at. And that makes us sound crazy to a lot of people. Our faith is that we are pointing to the fact that somebody already paid the price. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So a man-made covenant is what we would call a contract. Now, the difference between covenant and contract is covenant is, is relational. There is always a relationship. A contract doesn't have to have a relationship in place. Right? This is important for us to understand. There, with, with a covenant, there is a relationship factor. So that's why Paul doesn't just call it a contract because he wants to make sure we understand like there's value in the relationship here, much more than just some terms of service. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. And I, I want you to, to grab this. Like, Paul's going to break this down for us so beautifully. He says, and to his offspring, not offsprings. He says that the word that's used there in the Hebrew is singular, not plural. Right? So the blessing, right, from the promise 
that was there, yes, it reaches all of us, but the promise wasn't about all of us. It was about the one who would come. And Abraham understood this, right? He understood what God was saying, that there was an offspring. There was one who was coming, not offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Abraham, the one that you champion and you walk around going, we're sons of Abraham. He's our great ancestor, the greatest, you know, of them all. And he says, let me tell you something. There was an offspring that was coming. That was Christ. And I do want to point out that Paul is one of those Bible-believing Christians. Why would I say that? I know it's kind of yucky sounding today because he's constantly quoting Scripture while he's writing Scripture. This is why we say all the time that the book of the Bible is not like a bunch of thoughts. It's one continuous story, and they get it. Like, they're sitting here going, man, this really influenced me, and the Holy Spirit stirring them and saying, you remember when you read this and how I did that? Go ahead and write a little bit about this right now because these, all these dots are connected, right? And I want people to be able to dive into the Word and be able to go, oh, my goodness, like this is all connected, one amazing story. This is why context matters. And, and let me tell you, where, where, where pastors and evangelists, people who teach the word can fall short, right? We can talk about context and we can say, oh, we've got to look at the context, the verse before and the verse after. No, 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 no. Context is all the verses before and all the verses after. And if I only pull this little portion of context right here, then I can make it mean a lot of things still, if I span out to a chapter, I can still make it mean a lot of things. If I span out to a book, I can still make it mean a lot of things. But when I go all the way to the context of Genesis, to Revelation, all of a sudden, my parameters are narrowed pretty considerably because this text doesn't contradict itself. Scripture says that God is not the author of confusion. So if I'm interpreting something and it's bringing confusion, I'm interpreting it incorrectly, and I need to find the way that's logical and makes sense. It's called reason, and when you don't practice reason, you're the foolish one. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 430 years later, the law comes. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So before the law, there was the promise. Before all of the little activities and tribes and, and groups and nonprofits and churches that you could be a part of, there was the promise. See, the promise was the first thing. The covenant of salvation began with the promise, and 430 years later, we began getting the law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. This is why the law was added, because Abraham gets it, he believes, but there are people who come after him who go, yeah, 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 I'm a... I'm a I'm a, I believe in that thing. And they continue to live like hell. And so he says, because of transgressions, because people, once they were supposed to be saved, just kept living like hell. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, a contract requires that all terms be met, or it is broken and nullified. So, when we make a contract, if any party breaks a portion of that contract, there is now the right to come and say, it's nullified. And so you have this contract of the law that's being presented because people can't just seem to grasp how simple the promise is. And so he says, all right, you do all of these things, right? You jump through all of these hoops and you'll be saved. The idea is that if you, if you don't jump through them all, you're not saved. So what are your options now? You didn't live up to the, the, the contract you wanted, so why don't you get the contract that you needed? and go back to the promise. You see, they kept living in sin and kept trying to, well, yeah, you're a believer, but it's got to look like this, and it's got to look like that. And God says, no, let me tell you what it's got to look like. It's got to look like this, and you're never going to be able to do it. But we'll go ahead and lay this out here. We'll make the law for you. You try to do it. And when you realize that you've broken the contract, then come back to me. I've got a better one for you. I had it 430 years ago. It's just a simple promise, and all you have to do is believe in it. And I get it. Like, that's just complicated. That's why it's faith and not determination. Determination says, nobody's stopping me. I'm getting to the top of that mountain. Nobody's stopping me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get that degree. Like, that degree is, is good, right? And, and I champion that. My friend Dave up here is working on his Ph.D. right now about to crush it, and he would tell you in conversation, that PhD isn't going to save him. Determination helps us to create accomplishment in our lives, hopefully so that we can do more for the kingdom of heaven, but it doesn't save us. It was the promise. The law gave guidance during the period of God's revelation to man, and this is why the law is written. I talk about context in a greater, like, Genesis to Revelation scenario, all right? The law has things in it that people all the time are like, well, why does God say this? Why does God say that? Well, first of all, there are a lot of times we, we interpret a, a certain word and we go, well, this is what it means because it's what it means today. And we don't look at that context. But the other thing is, is that God has been revealing himself to a sinful fallen man. And it's a process, right, that is still not fully recognized. Do, do, do you understand that, like scripture says that we don't even have a glimpse into what eternity is going to be like. Anybody in here like a math person, right? Anybody know how to count at least backwards, right? So if you're looking into Revelation and it starts giving you some scriptures, right, about what the new earth looks like, and it gives you the actual dimensions of the new Jerusalem, and now that we have mapped the earth, and we apply the new Jerusalem onto earth, the new Jerusalem sits like six miles into outer space. That's how gigantic it is, right? Does that make sense to you? No, that doesn't make sense to me. So my faith says there are still a lot of things that I don't get. It was the same for them. They could not understand the fullness of what the cross would look like. And so the revelation is consistently being given to us until all is made known. 
Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What does he say? Certainly not. In the Greek, what he is saying here is that it will never be that way. It won't be. There's no amount of effort and determination you can put into it to make it be that way. What's he talking about? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? You'll never make them contrary to the promises of God. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You're not saved by the law, but the law is not contradicting the promise. They are hand in hand. Why? Because God gave them, but you're not saved by your good deeds. Being a keyboard warrior isn't going to get you any closer to heaven than showing up at church on Sunday morning. It's going to require your faith. And so if the law brought new life, then obedience to the law would be counted as righteousness. But obedience to the law is not counted as righteousness because no one could fulfill the law. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What the scripture did for us was it helped us to identify our sin. The law was helping us to go look at just how messed up we are. Like I made a list of rules. It was, it was a, you know, a good book. It had, you know, few things you shouldn't do in it. God showed up and he gave us 10 on the mountain and he just kept adding to it because we are so sinful that there are just times where we make up new stuff and God had to go, all right, add this one into the tablet. You know what I'm saying? You should not be doing this either. Oh man, well, let me figure out a different way to do that, right? Why? Because my bewitchment, right? My evil eye, my flesh is set on this lust and I'm not fighting that thing and looking at the cross. And so I just keep finding new ways. And at the end of the day, it's just those who believe that are saved. And we're going to wrap up here. And I'm going to tell you, I just, I got a preface for you. Like, do you ever, I don't know if you, when I get excited by myself, uh, like I'll, I'll just do this, right? And I'll be like, yes, this is so good. Thank you, right? And whether it's just something outside, but when it's, this, when it's something in scripture, like I'll get fired up and I'll walk through the house and like, I'll, I'll tell Ezra who doesn't get it. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, you won't believe what I just read, right? So I woke Carmen up uh, uh, to tell her this because uh, this was like, man, this was so, like so mind-blowing. Now, I've set myself up like the movie Avatar, right? It's the best thing you've ever seen. And then you go watch it and you're like, oh, I mean, it was good, but like, why is everyone freaking out, right? Or, or Titanic or something like that. But bear with me. Hopefully, this will feel really relevant when we're talking about culture and faith. Follow me for just a moment. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So any form of salvation that is not faith is a prison. Anything that you add to it, any little, oh, I'm at this, I'm at that, that's going to make me a better Christian. You're creating a prison. You're literally coming in and putting these little bars in place, and you're not going to be able to experience freedom. You're not going to be able to experience the freedom that God has for you. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law came in as a guardian to help us understand that we are sinful and we need to have faith, right? Okay? So that ultimately we would understand that it is by faith that we are justified. So is slavery wrong, right? If we were to pack everybody in Savannah into a big coliseum and ask that question, we would get a resounding, yes, slavery is wrong. There might be some outliers who have some like weird like thoughts and opinions, right? Right? Okay, slavery is wrong. But why is slavery wrong? Why is slavery wrong? Now, set apart from the gospel, you really don't have a reason other than I don't like it, I, I believe in equality. Well, why do you believe in equality? Well, because I think that they're no different than me. Why do you believe that? I can tell you why I believe it, because the word of God tells me it. Because the scripture has been leading me in this place, and my faith in Christ tells me that treating people this way is wrong. The word of God tells me. That's why the church, right, is able to identify sin and say it's sin. Not because there's like a movement going down the street going, we need to do this. Like how many people just conform to what everyone else is saying? Come on. Groupthink, is a, it's, it's real. It's real. Why? Foolishness, he says. Use some reason. Why is slavery wrong? Because the scripture talks about the value of a person. And this is why many of our ancestors stood against it. Like when we're talking about the civil war and the fight against slavery and the freedom and the emancipation of people, can I tell you, it wasn't like there was like, you know, this idea among five people there was a nation in turmoil and there was a group of people who called themselves Christians, but they believed you had to do this and that and they used the scripture to justify slavery. And there was a group of people who said that we are saved because of our faith. And so if the word in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation tells us that this is not the way we do something, we don't do it this way. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, I would love to walk you through a room that we've been working on in the back where we have been collecting newspapers and books from the time period where we, you can sit there and read for yourself the debates that were happening in this nation from people who were talking about how God views man and woman regardless of race. And that was the argument that was being had. And we see it as sin because God set us free. And this is why we actively stand against it. We do not accept that culturally there are different norms that each country and their leaders are expected to follow when it comes to the Uyghurs in China, children in Southeast Asia, or India with some 8 million slaves. We don't buy it. I'm not jumping down that rabbit hole because it's sin. And we have a responsibility to be a voice. You have a responsibility to stand up. What is that response? That responsibility is not the thing that saves you. Standing up isn't going to make Jesus love you anymore. He loves you where you are. You have faith in him. And because you have faith in him, you have faith in the fact that he's a good daddy and he doesn't tolerate this stuff. 
Is rape wrong? Certainly. Why? Because the scripture tells us how to value people and treat people. Is murder wrong? Absolutely. Why? Because the scripture, because God has led us by faith into relationship with each other, right? Is theft wrong? Yes, theft is wrong. And as a society, we may all sit around and talk about the fact that we agree with these things. But as Christians, we can tell people why. Because what the law has done, what action has done, is it has helped us to validate that faith that, man, these things are wrong and I'm not perfect and I don't get it right all the time. But that's okay because I'm still saved. Because I believe in the promise. So when, when, when the cultural movement is screaming that something's wrong, ask the question, why is it wrong? I promise you this, Genesis to Revelation, you'll always be drawn back to the word of God. You go watch a great movie, read a good book, and you man, that's such a great story. Why is it a great story? Because every great story leads us to the greatest story ever told. And it requires foolishness and bewitchment to be drawn away from that. Because the truth is, if our eye will be open and looking at the cross, all these things will point us straight in. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So living by these means keeps us protected, but does not save us. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, if you thought what I just said was the thing that got me fired up, that's not what got me fired up. It's what's coming. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I say it all the time. You can be a refugee from Syria, and I have more in common with you than I do with a doctor living next door because of the faith in the promise and the eternity that we will be together. He says, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Faith, not actions, will save you. And watch this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You've heard this probably your whole life if you've been in church. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does he say? He says, when you buy into the promise, watch what God does, right? He says, there are three identities that you give up when you become a Christian. When you buy into the promise, three identities you're done with. You no longer buy into them. The first one here, Jew nor Greek, what is that? That's race. I'm not identified by my race anymore. What does he say? Slave nor free. I am no longer identified by my economic status. I'm not the elite. I'm not the poor. That doesn't identify me. No male and female. My gender is not what I am identified by. So what are the three areas that culture, the enemy, demands you be defined by today, right now? What are they? I am telling you, they are race, economic status, and gender. And if you don't comply, they're coming for you. And the scripture just plain as day says that in Christ, those things don't matter. You're set free. Those identities are chains that bind you down. And he wants 
nothing to do with them because he doesn't see you through that lens. And you need to stop seeing yourself through that lens. Who am I? I'm a blood-bought child of God. He paid an incredible price and I believe that he's coming back and therefore I am saved by that grace and that faith and nothing that I do is going to make him come sooner, come later and add to the value of eternity when it comes to saved or not saved. And because I love him so much and because I believe all those things, I'm going to live the best life that I can live because by doing so, somebody will see something in me and go, what's so different about you? Oh, it's not because I've got this racial tag, this economic status, or this gender that I'm letting you know before I speak what you can call me. No, God doesn't even see me that way. And this is why, this is why Christians fight against that type of oppression, whether it is forcefully being divided by the government or championed by the culture. It doesn't matter which direction it's flowing. God has nothing to do with it. This is what Paul says. Paul says, your identity is in Christ. So choosing to not be defined by culture standard is not a declaration of intolerance. That's the enemy's language. Oh, you won't, you won't tell us how you identify, what this identification is? You're an intolerant person. That is a lie from the devil. It is not a declaration of intolerance. It is a declaration of faith. Do you know why I'm not buying into the system? Because Jesus saves. And let me tell you, there are no descriptors that I can give to you about me that are gonna add any value into your eternal standing before God. Let me tell you about a Jesus who took a terrible, wretched person and turned his life around. And he ends this thought and says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Offspring, remember he pointed out that plural and that singular, what does that mean? It means that we are now in the body of Christ. We have now become a part, a member of that body. And so the method for being a multitude of offspring is not because you were born into it, right? I mean, we see this all the time. People are born into all types of families. Some are born into poverty. Some are born into wealth that they could never spend it all if they wanted to. That's not, none of that matters in front of God. It is a declaration of faith that Jesus is coming back and now I'm an offspring and I'm one of the ones that, were, that, that God was talking to Abraham about. And so my, my message to you today, and if you're watching online, my message is this, get saved and be free. Get saved and be free. Be free in Christ, be born again, a child of God, and be ready for persecution. He, he says, Do you get, did you get persecuted? Did you get canceled in vain? I hope not. I hope it wasn't in vain. He didn't say, I, I hope that you didn't get persecuted, that you didn't get rejected. That's not what he said. He said, I just hope it wasn't in vain. It's perfectly fine. Like, let's own it. Like, you, you're coming for me? Come for me. Because Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. And the enemy can't stand it. I'll remind you of a story, and I'm just going to wing this closing right here, because this is, I'm fired up. Remember the story in the Old Testament when Elisha and the servant come out and the servant comes out and says, oh my gosh, like we're surrounded by an army. They're coming. They want to take Elisha and he's freaking out. And Elisha like, comes out and is all cool and is like, oh, can, can I get a cup of coffee? And the servant's like freaking out. Like, we're about to die. Why do you want coffee and bacon? I just like coffee and bacon, man. Chill out, you know? No, it's not okay. And he says, all right, all right, chill out. Lord, 
Open the eyes of his understanding that he will see that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. He's freaking out that everything's about to fall apart. And what does the servant see all of a sudden? Chariots of fire surrounding the enemy. He could not see them with his own eye in the physical and the natural, but God was there ready to do business, to take care of it and knock the enemy out. And Elisha was totally chill. Oh, you coming to wipe me out? Cool. I hope that works out for you because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I'm telling you, we need to be reminded of these things. The church needs to be reminded of these things. There are churches right now that are beginning to buckle under the pressure of this culture and the pressure of offense. And they are willing to make these compromises that we just simply cannot make. There is nobody that expresses more love than the church. There is nobody ready to do more for the community than the church. But we don't do it by their standards or their justifications. We do it because Jesus is king. So in closing... Do you believe that a simple promise holds the key? Think about that this week. Do you believe that it's just a promise that an offspring is coming that can, that can save you? Second question, what defines you? If you were to sit down and write out a piece of paper and you were to define yourself, what are the things that you would write out that define you? And I don't want you to feel bad if you're sitting here and you're thinking about some of your accomplishments, right? The thing that needs to move to the top, not just as a matter of practice, but as a matter of heart is that I believe Jesus is coming back. That's the first thing that defines me. I'm a Christian. I have a voice. I'm ready for this thing. God will protect me. I don't need the protection of others. And the last question is, are you willing to be canceled? Jesus said, when they persecute you, remember they persecuted me first. This idea that, that Christianity is just this hunky-dory, happy thing. Look, man, I'm not trying to sit here and convince you that we're the victims or whatever. I don't even own that. Like somebody goes, oh, so, so Christians are just the victims. No, we're not the victims. We're the victors. Jesus is king. What I'm saying is that I'm fully aware of the fact that there will be people who will throw stones and have things to say and they won't like me and they won't like my faith and they'll dog me out and they'll get upset. Perfectly fine with that. Why? Because Jesus is gonna win. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's stand to our feet as we close today. I just wanna pray for you. Our prayer ministry team will be in the back uh, to, to meet with you. If you want prayer, they're there. If you aren't comfortable with praying in person right now, Totally respect that. We have cards at the back, uh, out at the front where you could write out a prayer request, drop that into the giving box. We'll be in prayer with you this week. Uh, I just wanna encourage you that we do not have to conform to culture, right? And we don't have to be obstinate to everything culture is doing. Again, right, there's a balance. There's reasoning that needs to take place when we're talking about offense. And if it's coming after the gospel, I, I, I'm gonna offend you. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I, I, I don't care if you're Peter. I'm coming. I'm not, we're going to have a conversation. That's the integrity I'm going to walk in. That's the integrity that we need to walk in. Amen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we have faith that you are coming back. Lord, we pray, come back soon. And I know, Lord, that that, that, that has been the prayer of the church since the day that you left and it is your grace and patience that is long-suffering, waiting for all to know you. Lord, give us a voice in the midst of this. Give us a voice in the midst of this time to be able to point people to Jesus. 
to the promise that was made. We love you. Have your way in our lives. We praise your name. Amen and amen and amen. Guys, as always, go change your world. We'll see you next Sunday. If you need prayer, they're in the back. If you want to do the men's, men's conference, see me. I'll get you connected with Jeff. Love you guys.